Chapter Two of The Wind by Dorothy Scarborough. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Avai in July two thousand twenty one. Chapter Two. Letty gave a little cry of despair. Oh, what shall I do? Cousin Beverly didn't come to meet me. The night seemed waiting to swallow her like a bottomless sea the wind ready to rend her to pieces one of the two lounging men stepped forward making a gesture toward his hat excuse me ma'am but are you bev mason's cousin yes yes where is he he couldn't get off for some reason or other i don't exactly know why but he asked me to bring you out mr roddy called to the conductor hi hold the train a pair of minutes will you what for was shouted back above the wind and the bobbing lantern came down the length of the train to investigate the cause for the delay letty gave a swift glance at the stranger she could see him more plainly now by the light of the swinging lantern he was tall and had on high boots with spurs to them and a heavy coat and a broad-brimmed felt hat that shaded and partially concealed his face she couldn't possibly go away into the darkness and the wind with those boots and spurs and that face that she couldn't quite see no not possibly but what could she do mr Ward roddy stepped forward with authority who might you be he asked somewhat curtly i might be several persons drawled the other but as it happens i'm lige hightower my ranch is ten miles beyond bev's why didn't you speak up before mr roddy demanded the newcomer did not seem cowed by this masterful interrogation bev said as how the lady would be alone so i thought this wasn't the one this gentleman just helped me off the train Letty broke in somewhat confusedly. Then she wondered instantly if that remark would offend Mr. Roddy. It was hard to deal tactfully with two men at once when they had taken so evident a dislike to each other on sight. She turned to the conductor. He was a fatherly man who could give her advice. I'm scared. Ought I to go off like this? What must I do? Her voice rose in a frightened falsetto like a child's. Hightower spoke up instantly, in a deep, comfortable voice. "'Nothing to be scared of, ma'am. I'll look after you good and proper. Here's my sidekick, Newt Wartham. He'll recommend me.' The other lounger straightened up and joined the group. "'Yes, ma'am. We're big Bob Shillies. He's all right. I've been knowing him since we laid the trunk.' The station agent strolled up to take part in the discussion. Lige has fixed it up with my wife for you to stay all night at our house. The missus is tickled pink to see some company. The conductor's lantern gave an upjerk of relief. That's all right, little lady, said the conductor heartily. You'll be taken care of like the cat's whiskers. Good-bye, and good luck to you. He shook hands with her 
made a twinking grimace of farewell to her with his eye-moustaches, waved his lantern. All aboard! Letty gazed at him in dismay. So she was really to be left like this. Word Roddy shook her hand. Goodbye. Goodbye, said Letty in a weak, uncertain voice. And thank you for your courtesy. He stooped over her and spoke softly so that only she could hear. I'm coming back to see you one of these days. Maybe. And be sure to keep the address. He swung onto the steps of the moving train without waiting for her reply. As the train rolled past her, Letty watched it through a blur of tears. It seemed like the last link between her and her old life, even though it was moving westward instead of back toward Virginia. Trains were heartless things. She shivered with cold, for the icy wind was at her like a great dog, leaping on her, pulling at her clothes, shaking her. She felt very small and forlorn, her heart weighed down with a sense of strangeness and apprehension. The station agent spoke in a friendly voice, as if he read her thoughts. If you'll wait for three shakes of a sheep's tail, while I lock up, we'll make tracks to my house. Newt Wartham mounted a horse that had been standing unhitched, his bridle trailing on the ground, called, Adios, see you all later, and galloped away. The three others started off into the darkness. They ploughed along through the sand of the roadway that seemed almost ankle-deep. Letty felt afraid to put her foot down into it, for it seemed like a bottomless treachery, like a trap that might catch her. "'I guess you think you need stilts for this sand,' remarked Lige Hightower. Oh, "'It's not as bad now as it is sometimes,' the station agent put in. "'I suppose I'll get used to it by degrees,' said Letty in a strangled voice. She muffled her mouth with her coat to keep out the sand that the wind whirled into her face. The station agent laughed. They say a feller can get used to anything, just so he begins in time, even hanging. Eh, Lige? Well, that's a habit I hope I never fall into, answered Lige. Standin' on nothin', pullin' hem paint my idea of sport. Can't never tell what you're coming to, though. The agent raised his voice above the wind so that he was almost shouting. Letty muffled her ears now, too, to keep out the sand that was sifting in. She could feel its crawl down her neck and inside her clothes, could taste its acrid grit in her mouth, could smell it in her nostrils as she breathed, could feel its sharp sting against her face. As she stumbled along, in the darkness, tears washed sand from her half-shut eyes. What a terrible, terrible country it was that God had sent her to! But what if it wasn't God that had sent her, but only the minister, and he had made a mistake? The train would be miles away by now, with the conductor who was like a fatherly friend, and Mr. Wirt Roddy. The mere thought of that strange, disturbing man troubled her pulse as his presence had done. Should she ever see him again? Who was he? 
and what sort of life had he known the station agent led them through a gate and they came up on the porch of a little house whose windowed gleamed welcoming lamplight and whose door swung open at sound of their steps come in quick said a cordial voice before the wind blows you away a woman in a blue gingham dress took letty by the hand and drew her inside the station agent banged the door quickly to shut out the riotous intrusion of the wind that tried to follow them his wife's eager hands were drawing off letty's coat and hat settling her in a rocking chair her kindness the indubitable goodness in her face her welcome brought tears to letty's eyes not until she saw this homely motherly woman did she realize just how frightened and bewildered she had been how tense with terror of the unknown she gave a little shuddering sob and caught her breath like a child that knows it shouldn't cry but tries in vain to keep from it i'm silly she quavered i guess the wind got on my nerves that's all right child you just snub a little if you feel like crying does you good sometimes but with feminine contrariety as soon as she was bidden to cry letty laughed and wiped away her tears the station agent spoke she was scared to come off with a cowboy she'd never seen one before and she thought a cowboy was all over horns like a horned frog that's the way we grow up at first said the cowboy gravely but if they catch us early they can dehorn us and make us safe for society and of course it don't matter about hoofs because we always wear our boots even to sleep in he smiled a wide generous smile and crinkled his eyes at her and out here men alas die with their boots on added the other be ashamed to tease the little girl like that scolded his wife never you mind em honey men are born liars specially in the west i don't mind now that i'm here with you said letty her cheerfulness was returning by degrees the room was cosy with the open fire in the franklin stove the red clothed centre table the mountainous feather bed in the corner of the room and the carpet with its bright red roses blooming on the floor letty looked shyly at the cowboy who had taken off his heavy coat and his hat and sat on the other side of the fire from her his long frame folded up in a rocking chair she was not afraid of him now his eyes were kind-looking grey with shrewd little laughter wrinkles at the corners and with the far-seeing gaze of one who is accustomed to look at long unbroken distances such a look as is in the eyes of sailors she seemed to see the plains unroll before her in his eyes his hair was brown and somewhat crinkly his face and throat were sunburned until they were almost as dark as a mexican's but across his forehead next to his hair where the broad hat had shaded it there was a band of white in startling contrast to the rest of his face his mouth was big and his ears stood out rather prominently he was younger more boyish than her acquaintance of the train perhaps twenty-five though she couldn't be sure 
Well, Lige, how's tricks with you? asked Gus Gresham, the station agent. All right, Gus. I wouldn't say I had the world by the tail and a downhill pull on it, but I got no kick coming about my luck. The land I homesteaded is fair enough, though a little shy on water holes. And I'm getting a decent bunch of cattle started. No chance of me being big rich any time soon, but I ain't asking to have the hat passed round for me neither. Gus yawned comfortably in the warmth of the room. That's good. Well, it ain't so bad, for a fellow that hasn't had any back in. I had to save everything I got from the wages that old man Wilcox paid me for cow punching. And you know what a tight fist that old geezer was. I don't say he'd go to hell for a nickel, but he'd fool round the rim so long looking for it till he'd fall in. His host chuckled, as one familiar with old man Wilcox. You're in cahoots with Dave Denby, ain't ya? Yep. He homesteaded the land next to what I filed on, so we built our shack on the corner of the land so he lives in his room and I in mine. He's a good old Injun, Dave is? Yes, you're right, he is. Letty leaned forward, unable to repress her curiosity. How funny to have the house sitting on two tracts of land. Yes, m'm. Folks do that often out here. If you're taking up land, you got to live on a certain part of the time. But it's lonesome living by myself. I've known four members of one family to go in together and build a four-room house, each one living in a different room on his own land. And you two men live by yourselves? Yes, m'm. Me and Sourdough bates it. What did you call him? I call him Old Sourdough. "'because he don't know how to cook no sort of bread but sourdough biscuits "'when it comes his week to be biscuit-slinger. "'And he calls me Saleratus, or Sal, for short, "'because that's the kind I make.' "'Letty began to show interest in this new world "'to which she must accommodate herself. "'She tried to vision the house on the ranch "'with two solitary men doing all the work. "'How many cattle you got, Lige?' asked Gus. Oh, about five hundred hit, near as I can make out. Letty opened her eyes wide in amazement. How in the world do you manage to drive that many up every day? What? Oh, I save. Well, ma'am, we don't drive them up but twice a year, spring and fall roundups. She looked her astonishment. But how do you get the milking done? Calves tend to that, he replied laconically, while his lips twitched and his eyes crinkled with grave laughter. How funny! It'd be funnier yet to try to milk one of them wild-range cows that ain't never known the customs of civilization. You couldn't do it nowadays, lessen you rope her and throat her and tied her. She wouldn't consider she was born for such a lot as that. Letty tried to see the picture of someone trying to milk a rampageous range cow. Lige went on ruminantly. Cattle is like humans. There's some things they just naturally won't stand for. I don't know much about the West, she answered dubiously. No, m'm, but you'll learn a heap if you stay out here long. 
silence fell on the little group for a moment or two a comfortable easy silence that didn't need to be broken just to make conversation at last letty turned to mrs gresham i wish it was daylight so i could see sweetwater i wouldn't be too much of a swivet to do that her husband put in sweetwater is no sight for sore eyes but i've thought so much about it since i got cousin bev's letter with this postmark you don't have to live here said mrs gresham encouragingly there might be worse things nor that observed lige with judicial impartiality women like to herd in towns they say do you have a river here or is it a lake letty questioned as her three auditors looked blank she explained sweet water you know lige chuckled throatily names is like dreams they go by contraries most times i reckon the early settlers named the spots what they did because there ain't no water here and the nearest is brackish lime you know but what do you do for water mrs gresham spoke up we have cisterns of course they dry up in droughts her husband added his contribution of information some folks that ain't got cisterns buys their water it comes in on the train in barrels and you can buy it like that there have been times when folks had to drive twenty miles for water and bring it back in a tank and empty it into the cisterns there's been stretches when all our drinking water had to be hauled in on the train folks learn not to be too reckless with water out in this section letty lapsed into a depressed silence trying to imagine a life where one didn't have as much water as he wanted why water had been like air taken for granted in the scheme of the universe presently the warmth of the room her fatigue and the healthy sleepiness of youth made her drowsy and she heard the rumble of the men's voices in talk as from a distance caught disconnected phrases now and then but not enough to rouse her she found herself nodding mrs gresham's voice roused her i know you're tired and sleepy after your long trip so we'll go to bed you're going to sleep in here with me and lige can bunk in the other room with gus so soon letty sank into the feather bed that billowed about her snuggled into a warm nest and drifted off to sleep her dreams were a jumble of whistling winds of sand and darkness of wide wastes where skeleton cattle lay beside the tracks of a speeding train and a tall stranger with black moustache and eyes that seemed to know a great deal she dreamed of a flaming sunrise when all the prairies were on fire when she stood alone and thought of wert roddy she seemed to be buried in a mountain of sliding sand that mocked her efforts toward release and struggled up to find herself almost smothered in the feathers she was blown along like a leaf in a gale in the power of a demon wind that mocked her desperation she screamed but the wind shrieked louder she struggled but of what avail is a leaf in a tempest a feather whirled in a cyclone 
when she felt that she must die or go mad of terror she gave a strangling cry mrs gresham patted her shoulder had a nightmare nothing's going to hurt you she shivered and lay awake for a while remembering all that word roddy had told her of the winds and the west even now that she was awake she thought she saw herself as that leaf blown fluttering helplessly over the desert sand toward a mystery of doom but in the end sleep claimed her again she waked to a cheerful morning lige joked with the children at the breakfast table and consumed incredible quantities of fried ham and grits and gravy and hot biscuit the food tasted delicious to her too after the irregular meals she had had in travelling when lige had scraped his plate clean he pushed his chair back and spoke to letty well young lady don't you think we better get up and dust dust she looked round for a dust cloth hit the grit for the ranches your cousin bev will be honin to see ya leastways he will if he ever seen you he smiled at his ponderous gaiety she rose at once he beckoned her toward the door but first you must lamp this metropolis you this town you've been thinking up fancy pictures of he took her by the arm and led her to the porch he gave a wide flourishing gesture that bade her ignore no details of the landscape spread out before her gaze she looked at sweetwater and saw a straggling collection of small houses of the rudest simplest structure some not even painted some without fences around them none softened by the protection of a tree nor made homelike by a lawn or garden just little bare box-like houses naked and unbeautiful set down in a waste of sand letty rubbed her eyes in bewilderment and dismay of course there wouldn't be flowers in winter time she told her sinking heart she hadn't expected that but the town obviously held no prospect of them at any season sand 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 and this is sweet water she faltered in a daze yep then please take me out to a ranch as quick as possible sta bueno we'll light the shock they started off in an antiquated buckboard that rattled alarmingly driving a lean wiry young horse mrs gresham had put a hot brick at letty's feet and lige had wrapped a buffalo robe over her knees and tucked it in close around her thank you that'll keep out the wind she said gratefully but the wind has gone down this morning this ain't hardly any wind at all he expostulated true the furious blasts of the night before had abated but there was still enough to make letty unused as she was to texas weather uncomfortable the driving was a slow business on account of the sand this cayuse doesn't like to drive hurts his pride said lige i had a time gentling him enough to break him into it once they were well out of the town and on the prairies they seemed to be going it blindly 
for there was scarcely any perceptible road for their guidance everywhere sand in wind-blown waves stretching out like a vast sea the dead grass bent over in the wind like the curling foam of the waves the sky was a cold blue to-day and the atmosphere was so clear that they could see to incredible distances in all directions it feels queer to be out in the open with so much space about you and no protection at all said letty i've been used to hills and trees and houses he gave the horse a cut with the whip so that he jerked forward i like this best town life smothers me a fella knows where he's at if he can see all about him what's the use in wantin to hide behind trees and hills and houses this makes me think of a song old aunt charity used to sing a negro spiritual i run to the rock for to hide my face but the rock cry out no hiding place no hiding place here he listened gravely while she sang the old song then he went on with the expression of his philosophy when you look at it one way a man don't amount to a pinpoint but i'm more of a man when i'm out here on the plains seems like i can stand up on my hind legs and look god in the face man to man you might say and he understands me and i understand him letty felt vaguely shocked at what she thought might be irreverence i think you can find god best in a church she said with prim shyness well, i ain't saying you can't find him there he must come there sometimes anyways to show he appreciates the trouble folks go to fix a place for him but i have an idea he's kinda notionate like me gets fidgety if you try to pin him in a house too long i don't know said letty dubiously when you're out on the range long stretches by yourself when you don't hardly see a human being you come to know how little importance folks are and when you lie out in the open at night to sleep with nothing between you and the earth but a blanket and nothing between you and the sky you get sort of chummy with the stars letty shuddered at the thought i'd get too lonesome yes i reckon there are folks that go loco for lonesomeness it's according to what they've been used to they fell into a long silence thinking their own thoughts letty watched the prairies stretch out before her vast reaches of sand covered with bunch grass growing in clumps and curly mesquite grass with no trees only occasional bushes of mesquite and sometimes tall spikes covered with sword-like growths that looked as if they could inflict sharp wounds if one ran against them sometimes there were cactus growths like coral formations covered with innumerable needles and now and then a cactus shaped like a round little cushion stuffed with pins she started up presently at seeing a long gray-furred creature go leaping across the sand like a kangaroo what's that she cried ah nothing but a jackrabbit you'll see thousands of them round here she had never seen a rabbit of such enormous size 
did the animals thrive on western air or did the atmosphere magnify their size so that they only looked bigger they passed a prairie dog town where the citizens popped out of their holes to see them yapped saucily as if not afraid and dived down into their holes that's a dog town lige explained with a wave of his whip when you go horseback riding out here you got to be careful about going over such a place a horse is liable to step in a dog hole and break his leg or throw you a tumble i wonder if i'll ever have the courage to go horseback riding out here she said dubiously oh yes you will that's maybe what you'll enjoy most it makes you feel you own the universe to be on a horse on these prairies when the spring flowers are blooming and the sonora doves are talking soft and sympathetic to each other and the little desert wrens are flying round and the field larks are sailing high into the sky dropping music down like a shower of melody you can see plenty of quail with topknots and the road runners that dash round like they was crazy so there's always something to interest you if you like that sort of thing a bird darted along in front of them running along the ground not using his wings at all a black and white bird with a long neck that seemed to be in a prodigious hurry to get somewhere for some purpose or other that's a road-runner now said lige some call them charparel birds or paisanos and that little cuss settin on the limb of that mesquite bush wiggling his forked tail is a scissor tail even the birds out here are strangers to me i feel like a foreigner commented letty you'll soon get acquainted and there'll be a heap of company to you she would need companionship she told herself she felt oppressed by the solitude of nature which was so different from the friendly countrysides she had known at home these vast distressing stretches of treeless plains with nothing to see but a few stunted mesquite bushes and samples of cactus that would repel the touch no friendly intimate wild animals such as she had always been used to seeing gossipy squirrels gray or brown chipmunks only these colossal jack-rabbits and these prairie dogs that yapped at you as you passed as if realizing her depression and understanding its cause the man at her side made an effort to talk to her cheerfully he told her stories of the west of the early days and by his easy descriptive jocular words made her see something of what life had been in that region when it was even wilder and less populated than at the present he pictured for her the great herds of buffaloes that had roamed over the unfenced pastures till she could see the huge animals with their massive heads their dark shaggy hair and manes the humps on their shoulders as they grazed alone on the flowery plains or as they surged in masses in their migrations he told her of the fights the jealous bulls would have over the right to rule the herds goring each other with their fierce short incurving horns bellowing their rage to the empty silences he told how they would gather in thousands by the water-holes and that certain places were known as the buffalo wallows he pictured how the indians used to shoot them with bows and arrows 
or sometimes, when other means failed, they would drive herds of them over a precipice, down to the valley beneath, that they might have them for food. The white man, too, was fond of juicy buffalo steak, and there were no wild herds free and safe as in the old days. Letty could shut her eyes and see those vast moving masses of tossing manes and shaggy humps and menacing horns, buffaloes, wild savage creatures that typified the West. You don't see them great herds like you used to, he said regretfully. I can manage to get along without them, she retorted. He told her of the Indians that had formerly ranged on western plains, wild and free as the buffaloes, the Comanches, the Apaches, and the Kiowas, and described their battles, their marauding expeditions, when they would swoop down on some lone settler's ranch, fire his house, kill the family, perhaps, drive off the cattle and horses, and escape to the trackless plains where the white man could scarcely find them. He told her the tragic story of Cynthia Ann Parker, into whose life despair came twice, the little white girl who was stolen from her family by the Indians, and somehow escaped a death or torture that was the usual fate. How she all but died of homesickness, when she had to resign herself to life among the Indians, while her family and friends at first made efforts to recapture her, and finally gave her up as dead. Letty could see the lonely little girl in the Indian wigwam, almost perishing of grief and fear, longing for death to come and set her free. She shuddered, as Lige told how that she when was a beautiful young girl in her mid-teens, Peter Nokona, the son of the Indian chief, took her for his wife. She had two Indian children, he said, a boy, Kwana, who would be chief of the tribe, and a baby girl named Prairie Flower. She had got over grieving for her folks, and settled down to live as an Indian. But the whites came to fight the Indians after some raid the Red Devils had made. The Texas Rangers came after them to settle up the scores. Oh, did they hurt her? By mistake? cried Letty, breathlessly. No, he went on. But a ranger's bullet hit Peter Nokona's side, and he knew he was done for. He was game, though, and he was bent on following the custom of his tribe in death. So he staggered to a mesquite tree, a lone tree that was growing there, and he leant up against it, and began the death song the Comanches sing when they know they face the end. It's a wild, doleful sort of chanty, enough to make your blood run cold to hear it. But that poor woman had to hear it, and know her husband was dying, killed before her eyes. True, he was an Injun, and didn't deserve no better than to be killed, but he was her man, and her children were his. But what became of her? cried Letty. The rangers took her prisoner, and her baby that she had with her. The interpreter tried to talk to her in Comanche, but she wouldn't say nothing but one word over and over. Kwana, Kwana, and they didn't know what it meant. So they told her in Comanche they'd have to take her with them, and then she told about her boy, Kana, 
and begged them to find him. But they couldn't. They went back to the settlement with the woman, and word went round that a white woman had been took that had lived with the Indians for a long time. She tried every way to get away from them, as if she was anxious then to be an Injun, as she must have been to get back to her home when the Redskins first took her. At last her folks recognized her for Cynthia Ann Parker. "'Poor thing! I'm glad she got home,' murmured Letty. She broke her heart grieving over it, he responded grimly. She was more of an Injun then than a white person, and her child was somewhere on the plains she didn't know where. Her folks watched her so close she didn't have no chance to get away, and anyhow the tribe was scattered and her man killed, so she just sat and mourned, with a look on her face fit to make a stone cry, folks said. First her baby died, prairie flower, and then the mother went too. She never did get reconciled. Her boy, Kwana, grew up to be the chief of his tribe, and the town of Kwana, here in the state, is named after him. Indians are terrible creatures, aren't they? Letty shuddered as she thought of their savagery, and pictured a roving band of them rushing down upon some defenceless ranch-house. Yes, the white folks had to get the best of them if we was to live in this country at all, he agreed. Then he went on to tell her of old Ford Phantom Hill, where Robert E. Lee had made a stand against the Indians in the days before the Civil War, of the old ruined structure that might yet be seen its chimneys standing ghost-like in the gloom. You can see them chimneys standing there yet, with nothing round them but the mesquite bushes, and the owls crying all night. Some folks say that at night the ghosts of the soldiers under Lee come back, and the Injun ghosts are there too. But I ain't never seen em. This country all looks so wild. I wonder if it was worth all this trouble to take it, and fight for it like this for the white folks, she commented dubiously. Oh, yes, ma'am, it's a great country when you come to know it, he answered heartily. Couldn't hire me to live anywhere else. He went on to tell her of the fights with the Mexicans, as well as the Indians, and helped her to see something of the drama of Texas history. He told her tales of the wild cattle, descendants of the cattle left by the fleeing Mexicans after their defeat, in the region between Laredo and San Antonio, and described how the early cowboys had learned from the Mexican vaqueros their skill in capturing the wild cattle, as well as the arts of roping and branding. "'Them wild cattle sure are fierce fighters when you get em cornered,' he commented. Folks used to hunt them by moonlight and try all sorts of tricks to get the best of them. They're mean, but they got a lively strain in em that makes em valuable for this sort of country. I don't know how anybody keeps from getting lost in this region, when there aren't any roads or fences or houses to guide you. Oh, you get a sort of coyote sense that helps you know directions and find the place you want. He dramatized for her the great cattle drives twice a year, when the steers were driven to the north along the famous trails, the old Chisholm Trail, the Goodnight Trail, and others. 
she could see the roundups, the stampedes, the cowboys standing night guard, and all the drama of the primitive life of the West, so different from the easy, established civilization of Virginia. Through his words she could see the early settlers, the pioneers that had come to this section, not as she had done in a train, but in covered wagons, across prairies treacherous with Indians, scant of water, and threatened with multiple dangers, people who had lived, not as she would, in houses, but in dugouts they had fashioned for themselves. She could see cattle thieves and the swift vengeance wreaked on them when they were caught, the elemental but practical working out of law and order in a wild land. She saw quick, changing pictures of the early times, of the hardy, heroic pioneers that had made possible even so much civilization as the region knew then. But the women, wasn't it hard on them? She faltered. He smiled nonchalantly. Oh, yes, sure. But they were dead game sports, and they stood the gaff. They didn't whine nor make life harder for their men. Of course, when you come down to brass tacks, the whole thing depended on the women folks. The women of early days could shoulder rifles and stave off Indians side by side with their husbands. And work! My stars, how they did work! Raised big families, did every lick of work, even to spinning and weaving. I take off my hat to the women of the West. Letty felt small and unworthy at thought of them. His praise of them unconsciously rebuked her. But it must have been so hard on them, she contended. Yep, that's right. But they didn't stop to wail over their lot. They had bigger things to think of. They fell in love and got married and made homes in the wilderness for their men and raised children to go forward with the job. They didn't have time to think of ease or luxury, God bless them. His eyes narrowed with a far gaze as if he were seeing a procession of the heroic women of the West, sturdy, self-reliant, unafraid, fit helpmates for pioneers. She saw, in contrast, the women she had known, living tranquil lives, waited on by servants, keeping an exquisite daintiness of body and mind, in spacious, leisured ease and comfort. Old gardens, wide piazzas, treasured heirlooms of furniture and silver and books, traditions of gentility and family pride, made life gracious and dignified for them. Broken-down aristocracy, she heard them called, but aristocracy nonetheless. She felt a sudden engulfing homesickness for this familiar life, a terror of the new that she was approaching. How could she ever fit into this difficult scheme of things wherein a woman was expected to be a pioneer? "'Tell me about Cousin Bev,' she said suddenly, as if to postpone as long as possible, even for a brief hour or two, the contemplation of the new necessities and obligations. "'He's a fine fellow. Hasn't had the best of luck at ranching, though. Trout caught him once and nearbout wiped out his herd.' Then he went on a note for a son of a gun that skipped the country, and left him with the bag to hold. But he's a man all right. 
I loved him when I was a little girl. I haven't seen him in years. He was so courtly and handsome and gay. He's changed some. Yes, of course. That was years ago. And tell me about his wife, cousin Cora. He paused as if searching for the right word. Oh, she's not exactly the woman you'd have picked out for him. Me neither. But there's no telling where love nor lightning will strike, I've heard tell. I think she fixed her eyes on him and had him roped and branded before he knew what was happening to him. Oh? I think he was too much of a gentleman to resist hard enough. He always was so considerate of women. It don't always pay to be too much so, I've heard tell. Letty sat in apprehensive silence for a moment. He went on. She's the boss of that outfit, and don't you forget it. If I was you, I wouldn't go out of my way to contrary her none, if you want to live peaceable there. A long silence fell between them, in which Letty was trying to picture what cousin Cora would be like, and how they would get on together. She had been thinking only of cousin Bev, remembering his lovableness, and she hadn't stopped to think that his wife was a different personality and that her welcome might be less warm than his. Had it been a mistake, after all, to come out to Texas? But the pastor had thought it best for her and had made plans for her. They rode for miles along the same monotony of landscape, seeing the scattered herds of longhorn cattle grazing on the sparse grass, the jackrabbits almost indistinguishable from the background of greyish grass from which they sprang up, the dwarfed mesquite bushes, the cactus, the sand. Once Letty saw outlined against the distant slope a group of graceful creatures like gazelles. Them are antelope, he told her. You can see plenty of em out here, though there ain't as many as used to be before the country was settled up. How graceful they are. Yes, m'm, they're right pretty. They make good eatin' too. Antelope steak now is fine. I couldn't bear to see one killed. Oh, lots of girls out here have their rifles and shoot game as good as the men. But I reckon you're too tender-hearted to kill anything. But you'll maybe learn if you stay out here. Farther along they sighted a lone wolf-like animal that stood out clear against the sky. He lifted his nose and gave a series of quick yelps. That's a coyote. You'll see plenty of them round here, too. They howl round a place at night till you can't sleep good sometimes. One of em sounds like a half-dozen puppies in misery at once. Oh, I'd be scared to death to hear them. She shivered at the thought. Show, sure, they are plum cowards. They'd run from you. We do have wolves, though, lobos or loafers, we call them, big fellas that you need to look out for. And sometimes wild cats and cougars comes down from the mountains. She turned cold at thought of those prowling creatures, and the man chuckled amiably at her cowardice. Presently, after long hours, when Letty was stiff in every muscle from sitting still in a cramped position so long, 
and chilled from the searching wind that not even the buffalo robe could keep out, Lige spoke encouragingly. We're about there now. See that house? That's Bev's outfit. This is Bev's land, and them are some of his cattle. You can see his horses in the corral there. Letty saw a scattered herd of thin cattle grazing in half-hearted fashion. The house was a frame-shack of apparently three or four rooms, unpainted, set in an arid waste with no fence around it, but with wire fence enclosing the corral where several horses were standing. End of chapter 2